Hello and welcome to another mini-sode. Today we are talking about the anticipated federal mandate for healthcare workers to be vaccinated against COVID-19. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hotshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. So, J.J., several weeks ago, we heard from President Biden that he was directing OSHA and also CMS to write rules to mandate vaccination for OSHA to write rules mandating vaccination or weekly testing for employees of businesses of more than 100 individuals. And for healthcare, uh, the what he directed CMS to do was to write a rule mandating vaccination for all healthcare workers whose organizations receive payments from CMS, meaning serving Medicare and Medicaid patients. We haven't heard anything about weekly testing. That was not part of that initial communication either. So that was back in mid-September. Um, it is now mid to late October. What's the latest? What do we know at this point? Well, that was a beautiful summary, uh, by the way, of the difference which many folks get confused with. Right. You know, I've heard repeatedly, even of very large peer hospitals of mine who say, oh, no, you know, we're just going to gear up on the testing. And and I would stop and say, well, that's not going to be an option, most likely. As far as we know. Yeah, as far as we're hearing from all of the D.C. insiders. And so, well, what do you mean? Well, they're going off the OSHA standard, which right. is that any employer 100 or greater um, must uh, either vaccinate or test. And uh, healthcare uh, is a little different, as you indicated mm-hmm. in your introduction here. And that is we're regulated by the federal government and we're regulated by the state government and just about everything else, right? Yes. Health department. and Is there an industry more highly regulated than healthcare? I hear it's taxi cab drivers. I don't know. Oh, okay. There, there is some thought. I've never that. been one. So right. Neither. So what I do understand is that for Hillsdale Hospital and majority, Rachel, of our rural hospitals, you know, 70, 60, 70 percent of their payer mix is the federal government, uh, is the government in general, you know, Medicaid, Medicare, mm-hmm. uh, very small commercial insurances. So for us at Hillsdale, it's 70 percent. Right. So 70% of my funding comes from the government. And so when the government mandates something, whether it's on the OSHA side or on the CMS side, uh, that becomes how we have to engage in activities at our hospital. In other words, we have to comply. Right. And so when I hear both sides, number one, appears saying, well, we're just gearing up for testing. I don't think that's going to be an option, Rachel. Right. And we're going to talk about that in a few minutes, I think. But uh, that's very concerning. Uh, for us in in healthcare, um, and the second uh, component of this is just the idea or the thought: uh, if if we do have this regulatory body um, and it's CMS, you know, and they do impose this, um, the impact and the ripple effect uh, for small rural hospitals. Now, why do I say small rural hospitals? Because as I'm reading Becker's and other articles, I'm seeing hospitals with. 50,000 employees, 32,000 employees, right. you know, and We're like that's a more, more employees than people who live in our entire county. Pretty much. Right? right. I mean, so you look at it and you go, yikes, you know? Yeah. So they're only, they're losing a thousand people. Okay. But here in Hillsdale, you know, when we're just shy of 500 employees and I have a good number of those employees uh, telling me that they're not going to get vaccinated uh, and that they would test and they will only accept that option. Uh, it's concerning for us because we operate on such thinner margins, right. right? We operate with skeletal crews and we've heard that numerous times, right? We all wear five hats mm-hmm. and, you know, they're my counterparts in larger systems and your counterparts in large systems. Think about some friends that we were just with on the the prompter at our uh, seminar that we attended in 
and spoke at, Rachel, those people have people. Right. Right. Our people are us. Right. Right. I don't call people. <laughs> right. Uh, if when I say need call to my people, it's like, here's my phone number. Here's, my, my, here's my own phone number. Right. Uh, and so we're co- I'm coordinating my own schedule. Right. You're coordinating your own schedule. We're working back and forth to answer complaints. We're, we're working, you know, in tandem on projects to impact our community. But we don't have a big bench strength. Right. And uh, the, the bench is not very deep. And as a result of that, we can't afford to lose staff. Right. And I know every hospital could say that. Well, either can we, but you truly can. When you have, you know, 10 executive vice presidents and 16 of these and 17 of those, you can afford to lose staff, trust me. But when our bench strength, you know, isn't very deep and when you end up with uh, positions like yours and mine, where we're doing four or five different jobs that we've combined together, mm-hmm. um, we we do suffer when one walks away from the organization. Right. And so our ratio, uh, ratio for nursing, you know, it looks different than probably big health systems. It does. Mm-hmm. And so it's very, very deceiving to think that a 10% loss for an institution of 32,000 would have the same impact of a 10 or 20% loss of a small rural hospital because I'm going to tell you, far greater consequences exist with the loss of our rural hospital uh, staffing because services would end. Mm -hmm. We've heard that throughout this conversation over the last several months. Uh, Hospitals that have talked about if the mandate comes and the staff do in fact walk out, how those those services will be impacted negatively. Right. And I think, um, you know, something that is important to recognize is that even with these larger systems and hospitals across the country that we're seeing reports of, these are the turnover rates. These are the this is the number of people who were actually terminated for not complying with a vaccine mandate for those locations that have already implemented those voluntarily. We're seeing numbers like one percent, two percent. But the number is based on who is still employed by the deadline. That number is not, to my knowledge, um, and from what I'm reading, that number doesn't appear to reflect the number of people who left in between the announcement of a vaccine mandate and the deadline to have the shots in arms. So the we know the turnover rate is higher than one or two percent because we know of hospitals not far from here that while their health system, their mothership said, oh, we only lost, you know, two percent of our staff due to our vaccine mandate. Meanwhile, one of their hospitals that's not too far from us, we know for a fact, has shut down multiple floors because they cannot staff them. Yeah, that's not two percent of a no, workforce. Not at all. That's very deceiving. And it makes it difficult for us to be able to really understand, we can't use those locations as a way to help gauge what our own response needs to be because we can't compare those numbers. For one, because we're rural and so it's different. We have a different environment. We have a different population. Um, It's going to be different from that perspective, but also because the true turnover rate that's being the turnover rate that's being reported is not the true turnover rate as a result of vaccine mandates. So we can't even use that as a baseline to try and understand where we might be. Um, another thing that I do want to bring up, and I know you're going to want to talk about this, is um, so the difference between being subject to OSHA in this regard versus CMS, um, because we uh, we talked you talked to someone the other day who very well meaning. Uh, basically said, well, why can't you just say, forget you, federal government, and take donations and run your hospital based on the goodwill of your community, not recognizing that if a company is subject to OSHA, 
their penalty for not complying is fines. Whether or not they can afford those fines depends on their company and what they do and their profit margins and all of that. For us, as you indicated, in healthcare, the penalty for not complying is you don't get paid for 70% of your revenue Mm -hmm. that comes from Medicare and Medicaid patients paid out by CMS. So it's a very different situation. It's it's still punitive in a sense, but it's not you're going to now owe us this money. It's we're not going to give you the money that you normally get from us. Right. So it's a little different in that regard, but essentially it guts our operations instead of can we afford to pay a fine based on, you know, non-compliance. Now, not saying that that was something we were considering necessarily, but that's, you know, the argument that someone was giving us. Well, why don't you just say forget the federal government and do your own thing? JJ why can't we do that? <laughs> well, there are days that I wish I could declare that. And uh, if if you know much about Hillsdale Hospital, uh, you know we're located in Hillsdale, Michigan, which is home to Hillsdale College. And even Your this, alma mater. My alma mater. And even the person that I spoke with on the phone referenced, well, Hillsdale College can do that. They have a, they have a different product than right. I have. Uh, they have an education product. They have an idea. Uh, they have a movement. Uh, of sorts. This is this is not a movement. This is not an idea. This is a service. And so when the federal government, which regulates the hospital, shuts down your payment structure, then what that means is Medicaid patients and Medicare patients can no longer use your hospital. Correct. Right. So if that happens, where are these individuals going to get that care? So, so that's the 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 stick that the government has, right? right? The care it is. Well, we're going to pay you. Now they're not paying us any more. They're not paying us any less. But they're going to continue to pay us if we adhere to the federal standards and the requirements of CMS. And so, that is a requirement. It's not an option. Right now, I could go off on a tangent and go on an island and say, as this individual suggested to me, we'll take donations or try to raise the funds. And that's a noble thought. I want you to know that seriously. Yes, absolutely. Rachel, it is it is it is a noble thought. And this is all out of concern of for healthcare workers yeah, that they know who are could be losing exodus. their jobs. Yeah. Right. So we recognize the, absolutely. the thought behind and, it. And I appreciate the call and uh, her passion. But unfortunately the product is much different. So when right. you, you have a heart attack and when you have strokes and when you need knee surgeries and hip surgeries and we cannot take your your payments, Medicaid and Medicare, um, that becomes out of pocket. You're going to have to pay cash for that at real dollar value. Right. So a hip replacement of $30,000, you know, knee replacements, fifteen dollars to $25,000, that's out of pocket. Right. You're writing a check for that. Now, that doesn't happen in a community with a high poverty rate. Well, and it also doesn't happen when those patients traditionally would be on Medicare or Medicaid. Well, because that's why they that's have those why, services. Right, exactly. They do not have money. Right. So Most people don't have $30,000 they can stroke a check because they need a hip replacement. I, I, I don't know of anybody that would feel— I think it would be maybe a percent of a percent of the entire of American population yeah. that could afford to do that. And you could probably—that population could afford to do it a few times. Right. Right. But, you know, what happens over time as our bodies begin to wear out is we need hips and knees and we need, you know, eye surgery and we need all these surgeries. And if that becomes dollar for dollar cost. We're in trouble. Well, you, you absolutely. So the poor among us, you know, who are who are needing these programs and those that are underemployed, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they do not have insurance at their employment. Uh, these are individuals that need these services. And, right. and so here's the other aspect of that. As much as I would like to say, yes, we can be an island, guess what? These patients who have no means whatsoever, 70% of them, right. Medicaid and Medicare, which is 70% of our, our users, they will go to another hospital who accepts Medicaid and Medicare. Exactly. We will not be existing here. Now, we may fill a niche of 10 people, mm-hmm. but you're not going to employ surgeons and orthopedic surgeons and specialty care and not OBGYNs. Not salt, at least. <laughs> no, not right. Absolutely. Because they want to be paid. Right. And so that's that idea and concept is gone. You cannot mm-hmm. reject government payments. We're not the college. We don't have the access to do that. We don't have private donors from across the United States that want to donate money to our health system. Because why? Because people have insurance. Right. And they expect that that is the minimum requirement, Medicaid or Medicare. They're not going to be donating money so that individuals who do qualify for these programs and can go to other hospitals will just do it to use Hillsdale Hospital. So right. we have to be realistic in that. No, mm-hmm. you know, not accepting these funds is not an option. We have to accept government payments in the community that we reside in because it is heavily populated with Medicaid and Medicare. Now, Rachel, there are two things that I want to note here. Number one, I think it's worth noting at this at this point in our program, we support vaccination. Absolutely. 100%. If you listen to our last uh, mini-sode a couple weeks ago, you'll know that because we got a little bit on our soapbox about it because yeah. of the importance of it to Absolutely. save lives, to protect our rural health care workers, all those things. It works, Rachel. We know it does. And why do we know that? Well, we're seeing the results here at our own hospital. Mm-hmm. We have individuals who are here, all of our individuals that are in critical care unit, none of them vaccinated. Right. Um, the majority, I think we had one that was vaccinated on medical surgical, the 10 yesterday mm-hmm. uh, that were on med surge only. Only one was vaccinated back in February. Right. And so more than six months. Yes. Really time for a booster. Correct. That all totally makes sense and Correct. lines up with the science on that. Yep. All the deaths we've experienced, all unvaccinated. Mm-hmm. And we just had two deaths again over the last two days, Rachel. Yeah, one last night, one this morning. Very, very concerned. So number so number one, we support vaccine. Uh, we support, uh, we have throughout the flu. We are throughout COVID. Uh, we are supporting uh, vaccination, and we encourage it. In fact, we were uh, lambasted a little bit in the media for how aggressive we were about vaccinating our community back in the beginning. So if there's any question about how we feel about vaccination, uh, that should be enough to tell you that we absolutely believe in it and want as many people in our community vaccinated as possible, including our employees. Absolutely. Vaccination save lives. We see it. We believe it. And uh, the results here on our floor demonstrate that patients are released within a day or two uh, compared to those patients who are placed in critical care unit, put on the vent, BiPAP, CPAP, uh, heat high flow, and then die. Mm-hmm. And and that's the reality of it. Right. And, and they're healthy. You know, not everybody is sick uh, with comorbid conditions. They come in, several of the individuals, 49-year-old female, 61-year-old mm-hmm. male, 66-year-old male. Uh, today, I think that the ages were 60. 66 and 56. Yeah, that was mm-hmm. reported to us today. That was this right. past week. Um, so young, we believe in vaccination. So let's get that right out there. Second issue is um, I don't, I fail to understand why some health systems are burying their head in the sand with this issue. Mm-hmm. That they feel like, oh, it's no big deal because, you know, again, us in the rural communities are saying it's a big deal. Right. And we're just raising the awareness. And here's what the awareness is, Rachel. We want to be treated in healthcare like every other employer. Correct. We want to be treated to the same standard that OSHA is issuing, which is if you are over 100 uh, employees in your organization. And I'll even go beyond that. Just say if you're healthcare. 
Right. You get the option to test and not have to mandate the vaccine. Right. And and our employees would say, can you imagine what is going to happen in rural America where these providers and nurses and staff walk out? And we call it the great retirement and the great resignation. Right. And many people, if you if you want to Google that, read it because it's happening at alarming numbers and people are doing it out of principle out of right. their belief system, out of distrust for the workforce. And people are either retiring early or retiring when they can because some people are working beyond their retirement right. age and or they're just resigning. Mm-hmm. We're seeing it every day. And leaving the healthcare industry because they really can't stay in it. Absolutely. Under these circumstances. And I think the other thing that that is important to understand in this is that rural Americans are dying of COVID at twice the rate of non-rural yes, Americans. They are. COVID is a significant problem in rural communities. It's obviously a significant problem everywhere, but it is affecting rural communities when it comes to mortality rates much more significantly than other areas. Then we also typically you see in rural communities a more politically conservative population. And as we talked about in our previous minisode when we, when we kind of talked more about vaccines, the vaccine conversation has been hijacked Yep. And has become a political conversation. So now people's political ideologies are being exploited to the point that people are being convinced that there is this grave danger of getting vaccinated. Meanwhile, twice as many of their peers in rural areas are dying of COVID as they would be and not twice as many, but at twice the rate, twice, twice rate. are dying due to COVID than they would be in other communities. And so you kind of have this perfect storm of you have a community that is people are more likely to die of COVID when they get it. People are less likely to get vaccinated because of the political pundits who have turned this into a political issue that it's not. Hillsdale, for example, 43 percent vaccination rate. Yes. Very low vaccination rate in our county. And now you go into, well, guess what? The healthcare workforce typically reflects the population of your community anyway. Yes. So our vaccination rate for our uh, staff at this point is higher than that. Yes. But we do recognize that there are individuals in our community who have those same beliefs and convictions. And I also want to be clear that we absolutely believe that vaccination should be a person's choice. Mm-hmm. We believe it's the, the right choice for almost everybody, yes. but it's not our choice to make. And we right. recognize that. We encourage people to make that choice. Right. And that's what we are asking people to do. But when we start having to get into this position of we don't have the option to keep you employed if you don't get vaccinated, we know people are going to walk. And then we're in a position where our community is even at even more risk for death and complications due to COVID because there's not enough health care to go around for those who need it because the staff isn't there. So really, this is going to be, I think, in a lot of ways, um, a make or break moment for how this nation pays attention to rural health care in America, because we are going to see things get significantly worse before they get better if this mandate comes down the way we expect it to, which is without an option for weekly testing. Now, I also want to say I fully recognize that we could have way more people that when push comes to shove, they actually do get vaccinated than what we're expecting. And I hope and pray that that's the case. Um, But we don't know that for sure. So, JJ, as the leader of our organization, um, you know, you kind of put together a plan for to not put our head in the sand, knowing it's not here yet, it's coming. We don't know the full language, but we can't just sit and wait on it. 
Um, what have you done to help prepare our team and our staff for how we're going to handle this when it does come down once we do know all the specifics? You know, it's critical that we have communication, 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 and, and we, we teach that here at Hillsdale Hospital. Uh, engagement is number one priority for us, employee engagement. And so uh, we have to listen to them. We have to hear them. We, we uh, issued out a Pulse survey uh, several months ago. We reissued that Pulse survey out. Uh, as it pertains to COVID-19, um, knowing what's coming down very soon, uh, this could be as as early as next week, uh, is an understanding that either the vaccine mandate will be, you know, unilaterally decided for healthcare, or we're going to get the option for testing. Right. Now, what I've done is I've called the team together on numerous occasions. You're part of my executive leadership team, and we meet and we've been talking about this for months, mm -hmm. about what does this look like, how do we educate, and we do. We educate our community, we educate our employees, we tell them it is important to get vaccinated. And as you walk the hallways and see death, uh, knowing that that can be prevented, um, we encourage our staff to get vaccinated. But uh, at the end of the day, a national mandate will create a divide in America's workforce. Right. It'll create a divide in healthcare. Uh, and as I shared before, what we're going to witness is something we have never witnessed before because there are people that have the wherewithal to walk away from their jobs. And that will be very devastating. And Rachel, the greatest concern we have is we would have to shut services down. Right. Uh, we would have to eliminate certain areas of the hospital's operations. Uh, and I'm committed. We're not closing the hospital. Right. Um, we've been here 106 years, but it will look much different if, mm -hmm. if the workforce leaves. And the concern is, with a federal mandate, you know, I, I want to reflect on a year ago, a year and a half ago, our healthcare heroes were heroes. Right. We were buying them stuff. We were applauding them. We were giving them gift cards and across and, the United States. And we still had, we had uh, 1,300 yard signs that people uh, picked yeah. up from us and put out in their yards to support our to healthcare support our heroes. hospital. And I still see them all They're the all time. They're all over the Here place. Here we are, People you know, are mowing. Two years and, later. And we'll probably see it up in snow as well because right. I see them all over. Right. And so that support has been overwhelming. But across America, uh, people were supporting their healthcare heroes. They were buying them lunches. They were clapping for them as they came off their shift. So they went from hero to now being discarded. Right. And and you cannot and kind of being fire. being forced to remove themselves from their careers. Absolutely. Rachel, you cannot fire 10, 15, 20, 30% of America's healthcare workforce. You can't. They cannot go from heroes, saving lives, to now we are going to dictate this. You can't. It, it, it will devastate our healthcare industry as we know. It will slow right. up processes. Individuals will not be able to get the care they need timely. Right. Individuals may not get that care. Right. Uh, they may be in that holding pattern. And we're seeing it now. Uh, individuals that are waiting and boarded in emergency departments because the system's already overtaxed. For days. For days, even here at Hillstown. And not for a cold or a sprained no. ankle, for serious for seriousness illnesses on conditions. ventilators mm -hmm. in emergency departments waiting for, for tertiary centers to, to receive them. And, and we've experienced it even recently in the last two weeks, boarding in our emergency department, boarding in big system emergency departments. So here's the deal. It's already a heavily... Uh, environment where people and individuals are overwhelmed because of what they're taking care of. And right. the employees are just, you know, just to a point right now of a breaking point. And then you're going to add now a reduction potentially of 10, 15, 20, 30 percent mm -hmm. of the workforce already with a short staffed workforce. Right. You know, there's a shortage of nurses. There's a shortage of MLTs, shortages of CRTs, you name it. There's all these shortages out there of healthcare professionals. And we knew that. We knew that going into 2023, there's going to be a major shortage of nurses. Now, right. compound it 
with the mm-hmm. fact that you're going to lose a significant portion of staff. How do you think care is going to be delivered in those cases? So here's right. what I had to prepare for, Rachel. So we met as a team. We gathered ourselves together. We had dialogue, discourse about how we're going to tackle it. Ultimately, we called all the team together a couple of weeks ago as leaders, and we laid out our plan. And we said, this is what we have to do. You came up with a beautiful four-page fax, you know, basically frequently asked questions. You put together a statement, statistics, uh, basically a, a pathway that managers can take uh, as they talk with their staff. Right. And it's right in front of them. Uh, beautifully done. Four, I think, pages maybe? Um, I think it was six. Oh, but Rachel. I'll say this really, what we did was we put together, um, really, I like to call it more of a guideline or an outline for managers so that they can feel confident in having a conversation with their staff at this point before the mandate has been issued to try and understand how are their team members feeling about a potential mandate? Do they have a sense of what they will do if they're not vaccinated at this point and a mandate comes down? Just so we can kind of know where we stand. Um, But as part of that, we knew that staff were going to be asking questions of their managers as their managers are having their conversation. So this initial conversation that we've prepared our managers for and that they're having right now this week as we speak um, is really just to try and get a baseline, to try and understand what are we really looking at here when it comes to our team and the potential impact of a federal mandate. Once we kind of get past that and we know what the mandate is and we kind of know where we stand, then we can really start to address, okay, for folks who would consider getting vaccinated or maybe folks who are on the fence but they're kind of not really sure they want to, Mm -hmm. how do those conversations happen as a next step? But initially, we just have to create that open dialogue and foster that trust and respect with our team members to be able to say, you know, our position as a hospital is that we don't support a federal mandate for a vaccine. However, we recognize that complying with a mandate is the only way for us to continue receiving Medicare and Medicaid payments and operating as a hospital. Mm -hmm. So we have to, you know, figure out with that, what are we going to see in terms of our staff as best as we know and as best as they know at this point? Because they don't probably don't like, you know, a lot of people, we don't know what we're going to do until we're actually there and the decisions in front of us. Mm-hmm. But if we can at least have a sense of where people stand, it will allow us to prepare a little more and to recognize, do we think we're going to be able to keep most of our services open and maybe just reduce capacity for some? Are there going to be services that we have to shut down entirely what are we going to have available? And again, this creates an additional stressor on the problem in rural communities of lack of access to specialty care, mm-hmm. lack of access to a multitude of services as opposed to just here's an ER and a primary care doctor. So, you know, hopefully for us, we'll be able to work through that and not lose a lot of the access to incredible specialty care that our community has the benefit of because you and also your predecessor have made that a priority here mm-hmm. that we bring in as much specialty care as possible. Um, we don't want to have to have to lose that as a result of this, but of course that would be better than, you know, losing our hospital. Absolutely, Rachel. And so when we look at it, you know, it's meaningful conversations with the staff. Uh, You've drafted the outline. Uh, We've sent it out. We have uh, provided the managers with the list of their employees, uh, and they're going to engage them in conversations, not arguments, not uh, dictating to them what they should or should not do. Uh, First and foremost, we go into the conversation knowing that vaccines work. Now, we also go in recognizing that we have some autonomy, and we as a hospital, as an organization, do not feel a federal mandate is appropriate. However, now that it's mandated, if that when that comes, uh, then we have to have action. So we're asking right. the employees a series of questions. For example, if there is a mandate, 
will you continue to work in healthcare? Right. Um, that's, and to your point, you know, that's probably not even going to be an accurate reflection yet until you're down to the wire, right? right. Until you're facing the decision, you know, you may say no today and mm-hmm. because you have to take care of your family. And then we ask other series of questions, you know, if the mandate does come, you know, what types of uh, environment are you going to work in? Um, we also ask them questions of, you know, the, the even getting tested. You know, we want to know if we do get the testing, you know, are they going to get tested? Right. Those are all important things to know because now I have to know if for whatever reason there's a reversal and the the president, the Biden administration eases up the the pressure they're given to CMS and we do see a um, opportunity for testing. Now I've got to know how many of my employees are going to test because people are saying regardless if it's vaccine or test, I'm still walking. Right. And I need to know. Are you walking if it's a vaccine or are you walking if it's testing? Both. When What's going to be your catalyst for walking? Right. And um, interestingly, uh, someone told me yesterday on a call, uh, I believe you were on that call, that said, well, JJ, we had one nurse that said, when will we know, you know, which direction the hospital's going? Because if their colleagues, they're going to take the vaccine if it's mandatory, but if a majority of their colleagues don't get it, they don't want to work here short-staffed any further. Right, right. And so, That's the other issue. Yeah. It's not just who's going to leave because no. they don't want to get vaccinated. No. It's who's going to leave because they don't the want workload. to work oh my God. 60 hours a week every week for Absolutely. the foreseeable future or work, you know, their normal three 12-hour shifts a week with yeah. way less staff than they would normally have. Absolutely. And, and now they'll have some choices, right? So then you'll have an out-migration of even more staff at rural hospitals just compounding this issue even mm-hmm. greatly. So one of the things that I'm looking at is I want to know what the numbers are preliminarily. Right. And then, hopefully, within the next week, we'll know what the the requirements are under CMS hopeful that they'll be reversed from what we're hearing they're going to be and that we can follow the OSHA guidelines and that we can then focus in another area. Because here's the other important area, Rachel. Test kits are going to be scarce. Yes. Understand. Because of all the employers subject to OSHA who will be testing their unvaccinated staff. Anyone over 100 employees. So Mm -hmm. think about your community. If you're listening to this and you have a Walmart and you have a Kroger and you have local grocery stores and you have businesses and industries, they're over 100 people. Right. They're all going to need to get test kits. We don't know if it's going to be one a week, two a week. We don't know. But right. here's here's what's going to happen. Oh, the cost of test kits are going to go up. And pretty soon we're going to have an industry of billions of dollars in testing. And you just go, wow. Um, but I have to prepare for that because I have to know, number one, can I get the test? Right. Number two, I have to budget for this. So what programs do I in to be able to pay for the testing? The government's not shelling out money for testing. They're not going to say to every employer, oh, here's $100,000 every year forever for your employers, employees to get tested. And then the other questions that have been raised to me, which I can't answer. JJ, does that mean if the, if the shot's mandated, the booster's going to be mandated? Right. No uh, idea. I don't know. You know, so you mean they're going to mandate that I get three shots? I don't know. You know, all of those things are yet to be defined in the rules, if you would say. But please, for the listeners today, if you're in healthcare and you believe that you're just going to follow OSHA, please have the conversation with your executives uh, and your teams because you have to look at what the regulation CMS is going to impose on hospitals who accept federal dollars. And it's not just 
any anyone over 100 employees. It's going to be for any healthcare, whether you're in a primary care practice owned by a hospital that has six people, whether you're in a private practice with 25 people mm-hmm. or with two people, you are going to have to comply if with the mandate. If you serve Medicare and Medicaid patients, that's it. If you don't serve Medicare and well, Medicaid patients, maybe you're a private practice as a as a physician and you have, you know, four employees and you yeah. only take private insurance, then that we, as far as we know, should not apply to you. But that is very few and far between in the healthcare industry. You know, um, I think as we reflect upon it, Rachel, you know, we we have been advocating for you know some autonomy uh, in in testing, and I think as we look at what our healthcare heroes have been through, um, in my my humble opinion, I think it's the the moral right thing to do right. is to give to give the option. I really do. I agree. I think that uh, what we're going to witness uh, is going to be very devastating long-term. Mm-hmm. Now, we may not feel the effects of it initially. Some hospitals may survive for a year or two on their cash on hand, but ultimately it's going to impact. And and let's just, as we always do in these programs, let's dive deep into what the impact would be for the community if they lose their local health care or their, or their hospital or their uh, community clinics. What happens? Well, their economies are in trouble. Right. They begin to, uh, they're the largest employers typically or the second largest employers in those communities. And they begin to dry up. And then guess Mm -hmm. what? They don't have jobs. And then guess what? They're not buying cars. They're not buying groceries. And it just compounds the problem even further. And we become poorer in our communities. Because more jobs don't come to your community when there's no access to health care either. Because employers don't want to bring their employees to places where they cannot get the care they need, and then they have an unhealthy workforce because they can't manage, you know, their health conditions, whether they're chronic or otherwise, and then they have a workforce that you have absenteeism. You have higher costs for your health insurance for your employees because they're unhealthy. There are all of these other factors that that play into that, which is why we, we say often when local communities lose their local hospitals, the communities tend to die too. Absolutely. And and we have said that repeatedly on this program as we look at over 130 closures since 2010. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at those communities who've lost those. They they The majority of them have dried up. Mm-hmm. They've lost, uh, you know, their economic uh, footprint. They are struggling. They cannot, you know, do projects for their communities. Their roads are in disarray. I mean, these are real things that happen. Right. Because we're typically the largest employers in those small rural communities. So here's our plea today. Uh, if you have a voice with anybody in in Washington D.C., uh, advocate advocate for your rural hospitals, advocate for your healthcare heroes. We were putting them on pedestals, and right now we're sending them out the door with their pink slip, and in many cases, not giving them their PTO, not allowing them to have unemployment, kicking them out the front door. They were our heroes. These were the individuals on the front line risking their lives, sleeping in their basement, sleeping in garages. We have we know of people in our own facility that were sleeping in abandoned properties that were on their property, seriously running cord extension cords with space heaters and true story to keep it away from their family because we didn't know what we didn't know early on going into this. It was before the vaccine and they were staying in their garages. They were living in campers to try to take care of the sick among us. And now we go from that and idolizing them and thinking they were wonderful to throwing them to the curb. It's disgusting. Right. It is. And as much as we know important of uh, the importance of the vaccine, we also understand that these are healthcare professionals who are going to make that choice. Right. And we have to meet people where they are. We do. And testing, giving other options is important because now we get to the point where you have to ask yourself, 
is it better to have unvaccinated healthcare workers or is it better to not have healthcare workers yeah. to take care of patients? That's where we're at today. That's the balance. Absolutely. And, you know, we're going to see as this mandate comes down, um, you know, how all that plays out. And I think we're probably going to be the ire of some people uh, and, you know, because they are just espousing, you got to do it, you got to do it. We all have to enforce it because, you no, know, um, we're advocating that there has to be an, another option. It can't mm-hmm. just be a single-handed line of you're going to get ma- uh, mandated to be vaccinated. So if you're listening, we encourage you to support your local healthcare heroes. And there are many ways that you can do it here at Hillsdale Hospital by checking us out online or Reach out to your community hospitals. Ask them, what is it that we can do for you? How can we advocate for you? And I think you're going to find uh, some hurt and broken people who need a voice. Thank you for joining us for today's mini-sode. Next week, we'll be speaking with a hospital leader who doesn't just serve a rural community, but a geographically isolated rural community, which can be a whole different ballgame. So be sure to tune in. If you have a topic or issue you want us to cover on a future mini-sode, shoot us an email at marketing at hillsdalehospital.com. You can also find Hillsdale Hospital on Facebook and Instagram. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. You can also find us now on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network, hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit RuralHealthRising.com.